sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, 10 weeks, which is longer than we typically go inside of a sermon series, but the Sermon on the Mount is longer. And so if Jesus could preach that long, then we would go that long also. We didn't want to uh, skip over any parts of it. Admittedly, I've been part of a sermon series in the past. We've done the Sermon on the Mount, and we've only done uh, four or five nice parts of the Sermon on the Mount that we wanted to pull out. And uh, one of the things that I, I read leading up to this is uh, an author said, people will often say that they love the Sermon on the Mount. They probably haven't read it all the way through, you know, because there is some difficult things. There is some uh, strenuous things inside of there for us. And so we just wanted to, you know, camp out in there for the summer months and journey through that. I am grateful. Uh, I've been off for four weeks. And so today I don't know if I will be rusty or if I'm going to speak for an hour and a half because I have all this like pent up words inside of me. But hopefully neither is the case. But uh, four weeks off, I am grateful. Um, Steve and Bill preach on a regular basis, and I'm grateful for their uh, commitment and leadership, but also having the opportunity uh, for Jack to share with us last week and Eddie to share with us a couple weeks ago. Uh, just grateful for the, their men, for their commitment to Christ, for their willingness to step up uh, in that role and uh, for sharing with us. And so why don't you join me in recognizing, I don't, Jack might have left already because he did his announcements, but that's, uh, Eddie's in the back there, but just grateful for uh, their commitment and uh, their participation in that. Just so you know, uh, some uh, times it's referred to as pulpit supply when the senior pastor is away and you have to preach. That is not my approach to it. I believe in a teaching team and that a collection of voices, a diversity of voices makes us better, makes us stronger, not just because it gives me time off to sit in the front row, uh, but I think that we're stronger because of that. And so I'm grateful for the, the teaching team that we've assembled here and um, even as we look towards um, moving on, you know, after Steve and, and uh, the tremendous gift of, of teaching that God has given him, uh, I'm confident, again, that God continues to um, give us a team approach to, to preaching his word week after week. Okay, so week number 10 uh, could have been 20. Uh, there, we moved quickly, more quickly even than we wanted to in some ways. But week number 10, we've considered themes over the past several weeks that the Sermon on the Mount wants to take us from outer behavior to inner transformation and internal character. Not just morality for the sake of managing behaviors that are socially acceptable versus not socially acceptable, uh, but what it means for the gospel to come to the deepest place of where we are and to transfer, transform how we live, how we make decisions, how we treat other people. Uh, we made the statement a couple different times that Jesus is issuing a very difficult teaching and yet the crowd seems to be growing that they weren't off-put, uh, Jesus did not uh, come across in such a way that was off-putting and that was intimidating and that scared off people, but they were drawn to him even as he was telling them how they were living was wrong and what it meant to really follow and seek uh, God at the deepest part of who they are. It was beyond belief, beyond merely just believing, nodding your head, beyond just mere behavior, beyond religion and going through the motions and ritual, Jesus wants to take things deeper, and what he's most concerned with is the authenticity uh, that comes out of those who would name his name and follow him. And so this morning we wrap up uh, two short paragraphs to finish up this sermon, and it's, it's interesting to me that Jesus begins with a, a compelling, almost haunting, uh, challenging statement, and yet at the same time an engaging picture, that Jesus is going to end with a strong statement, but then a word picture and between those two things, that's how he ends 
his sermon, and again, the focus is on application, authenticity, action, what it means to live that out at the deepest level of who you are. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in uh, Matthew chapter 7, beginning first with uh, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So the, this is the strong statement. After everything that Jesus has come through saying, you know, don't worry any longer. Ask, seek, knock. Uh, you are, you know, blessed are you, the, you know, the peacemakers, the pure in heart. And, and, and this kind of engaging sermon, even the difficult parts about uh, lying and anger and divorce and fasting and how you should pray and, and all those things. He comes to this point and uh, he says, all right, we're going to wrap things up. Let me just boil it down for you. Not everyone who has religious activity and who has religious speak is going to get in. And we're forced to step back a little bit. And, and for a culture in which we live in that the exclusivity of Jesus really comes out, not just in, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John chapter 14. But when you come to a statement like this where Jesus says, it's possible for you to be all around religion, but for religion to not get into the deepest place of you. And so we're, we're forced then with the question, could it be that for me, for people in my life, for people that I know, for people in my church, for people that I've prayed for, for people who have you know, said that they would pray for me, is it possible that they're not going to be in heaven when I get there? Is it possible that you could somehow live in, in such a way where you're attached to the things of God, but it doesn't get to the deepest place, and you find that you've been deceived or you've missed it? along the way. And, and I have to tell you, this is not a, a scare tactic that somehow, you, you know, let's just make sure it, it sticks. A year after I, I became a Christian, it was, uh, I, I've told my story before that there was a revival service and I didn't respond. And over the next six months, I kind of looked at this thing of what it meant to be a Christian. So I had kind of done my homework, not just academically, but in terms of what it meant for my life. So when it came to July 2nd in uh, 1991, uh, when the time came for me to go to the Alder at Delanco camp, I think I knew pretty much what I was getting into and what was happening and taking place inside of my life. But every time I heard a salvation message, probably for the next year, certainly for the next nine months, there was that little feeling deep inside of me that said, I wonder if I did it right. I wonder if it took. I wonder if I've sinned since that day at Delanco if somehow it undoes what was done. And at the time, it was a nagging thing, and I don't think it needed to be there. There's the assurance of salvation, and, and eventually I grew past that, but I'm also grateful for those days because I think as my life was being changed from the inside out, it always kept primary, at least for that first year, and I think I've continued to live inside of that memory. What's most important, because you can get 
locked into. Now I'm involved in this Bible study, or I'm learning these things, or I'm asking questions about, about the book of Revelation, or uh, I'm a teenager in youth group. When do I get to read the Song of Solomon? And all these different you know, questions you know, that maybe come up inside the Christian life. I don't act like the people inside of my high school locker room, so it must mean I'm okay. My parents don't go to church, and I do, so it must mean that I'm okay. And regularly throughout that first year, I think the haunting challenge was, is it real? Or am I just going through the motions? Because I can say, Lord, Lord, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have that relationship. I can show up at all the right things and try to do all the right things, but if it doesn't come from Jesus being at the very center of my life, then I'm missing something. Do you know what's challenging is that we live in a world that is growing more and more spiritually illiterate, according to, to Scripture, indifferent to faith, and church attendance as a whole is going down, even for people who claim to be or, or are Christians. We just live in a world where things seem to be sliding that way. It's so easy then for us to say that, or, or to view inside of our mind that any inkling of spiritual inclination must mean salvation. Because if culture is going this way, then as soon as someone even says, will you pray for me? Well, you know, God's doing something inside of their life. And I, I think that that's great. Because I think God is on, on the move in different places, and we need to be uh, cognizant and aware of and looking for the places where God is on the move. But let's not lower the standard either, either for ourselves or for the people we come in contact with that all we want is for them to go from spiritual indifference to spiritual curiosity. From twice a year church attendance to eight times a year church attendance. To having the Bible on their shelf to having the Bible on their coffee table to listening to sports talk 24 hours a day when they're in the car versus having one of the Jesus stations on their presets. If we're not careful, because everything seems to be going one way, as soon as someone shows the slightest bit of inclination, we become convinced that they must be on the right track. And that's not necessarily the case because it's possible to surround yourself with religion and yet it still be something that's external. So even people who call him Lord doesn't necessarily signify that it's gotten to the heart of who they are, that in fact you could be so saturated with religion but void of Jesus inside of your life. Philippians 2 reminds us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, which means everybody who finds himself apart from Jesus Christ for an eternity still can say and has said, Jesus is Lord. The statement, even the demons believe and shudder. Like, belief is not enough, but what does it mean that we've placed our faith and trust in Jesus? He goes on and he gives a couple of, of strong analogies here. They say, Lord, haven't we prophesied in your name? Haven't we cast out demons in your name? Haven't we performed miracles? These are not the temp jobs of the church. These aren't the entry-level positions of the church. These are, you would see them to be very high and lofty. This is not apprentice or journeyman work. This is master Christian type work. This isn't having a catch in the backyard with a football. This is NFL level type work when we think about these things. This is not I threw $5 in the offering plate or I showed up, I attended church or, you know, I did something. These are, we've prophesied in your name. We've spoken forth, we've proclaimed We've preached, we've taught, we've issued forth in your name 
the reality of who you are. Haven't we prophesied? Haven't we cast out demons, performed miracles? Jesus uses this as an example. Not, Lord, didn't we just come to church? Didn't we do whatever? But even these things, he says, you may have done all those things. Jesus doesn't question, no, you really didn't prophesy. You didn't perform miracles. You didn't. He says, yes, you did them, but I never knew you. You can be saturated with religion, but void of Jesus. You can give the full appearance of being a Christian, but not have any identification whatsoever with Jesus. That means then that perhaps the most dangerous place to be sometimes is in church. Because it gives the false security that I've got it. I believe it. I've nodded my head. I show up. I think that I'm good enough, or at least I'm better than some other people I come in contact with. This must be it. What's worse is not only do we get a false sense of security, but sometimes we look and we say the problem is out there because there's a community full of people who are asleep this morning. There's a community full of people maybe who aren't trying to be nice to their neighbor. There's a community of people who are filled with thinking about themselves or not serving anywhere. And so if I'm here, I must get it. And if they're not here, that means they must not get it. Perhaps the most dangerous place to be is in church. Jesus says sometimes we settle for less than the real thing. Verbal confession is important, but it is not all that's necessary inside of your life. Notice he says the words, I never knew you. Not you never knew me, because sometimes we think we know God because we, we read from scripture or we've heard enough things or we've learned enough. But the statement is, I never knew you. Now, back in the book of Psalms, we read that I formed you from before you were even born, the time that you're in your mother's womb. Like, we know that God is an all-knowing God. What does it mean that he would make the statement, I never knew you? Because surely God is aware of your existence. He is aware of the circumstances of your life. He's aware of where you live and where you work and how many kids you have and what your biggest regrets are and what your biggest hopes and dreams are and how much is in your bank account and all those things. He knows everything about you, but there's a difference between knowing about something or having a knowledge of versus having a emotional and relational connection with. And to a group of people, he says, and this is Jesus, and, he, and he's not talking specifically about this, but he says, one day... There will be people who come forth and say, didn't we do this in your name and this in your name and this in your name? And he'll say, yes, you did. But we never had a relationship. And it's crazy in church sometimes because we, we have this conversation ongoing. And yet sometimes it ceases to be, or maybe it never was, something that was real inside of our life at that level that we have that intimate connection and fellowship, a relationship with the God of the universe who gave his life for us. So Jesus begins with these haunt, haunting verses. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Away from you, away from me. I never knew you. But he goes on and there's uh, hope or there's at least optimism in the fact that uh, he now offers a little bit more of a compelling picture for us. If you know, the, those in the crowd are somehow scared away or intimidated by what he said. 
he goes on and, and he says, I have one last picture to give you. Verse number 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, so referring to above, not just hears, but puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain, rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But whoever hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Now this seems a bit more compelling than the verses above, but maybe not if this has actually happened to you inside of your life. Uh, in fact, the, the children's song, you know, maybe that we grew up singing or you taught your kids, the wise man built his house upon the rock, the ro wise man built his house upon the rock, the wise man built his house upon the rock, and the house on the rock stood firm. The foolish man built his house upon the sand, foolish man built his house upon the sand, foolish man built his house upon the sand, and the house on the sand went splat. Um, fine for a children's song, but if that was really the existence, if you came through Superstorm Sandy or you survived a mudslide and you, see, you hear a little kid singing this song, you might find church to be a little bit offensive that day, even in children's church. Because after all, for all of us, the rains came down and the floods came up, the rains came down and the floods came up, the rains came down and the floods came up, and what happens to the house is the only thing that's different. It's a compelling picture, but notice how Jesus describes it here. There is the same quality of construction in both. The same words there. The house was, was built, the house was constructed. There's the same level of, er, of construction quality inside the house itself. In both cases, there was rain. And in both cases, there was wind. The only difference between these two houses at all is in what they were built upon. One being sand, one being rock. And I think I <coughs> shared this before one week as we were concluding that one of the things I learned from working with my dad digging swimming pools is the, the importance of building something that was placed on something that was firm. That we would have jobs where there were buried tree stumps or just caving in ground because of water or just a variety of different situations and we would go down deeper and deeper till we actually found something that could be built upon and build back up with bags of stone to then build the pool on top of. Because it didn't matter how much the side of the pool was fastened together, it didn't matter how pretty it was from the outside looking or even how well it stood up when everything was good, but where would that construction be five years later when it was tested? Eventually your foundation will be tested. Eventually it will be tested. It's unseen, it's forgotten, it's not the measuring stick of your life, but one day really not only will it be tested, but it becomes the only thing that matters. And it's crazy because it's just one day. You can live for eight years, 10 years, 20 years, and the things that matter seem to be the, the appearance of the picket fence or the yard or the siding or whether there's new windows or what the appliances are or the living room furniture. And you could spend your whole life and the only thing that seems to be evaluated or seen by other people or even noticed by you are those things on the external. But all it takes is one day, one moment, one event 
and the entire value and quality of your house is determined by the foundation on which it, which it sits. Eventually, your foundation will be tested. There comes the day where it seems like there is nothing else that matters. And so with this, Jesus comes to the end. After talking about prayer and, and worry and judging and giving and fasting, he boils it all down to saying, how is your foundation? Maybe more importantly, what is your foundation? Who is your foundation? He brings it all back by saying, you can try from the outside in to do everything we've just talked about, but the most foundational question for you when it comes to your foundation is, do you know me? And maybe more importantly, the way he asked it is, do I know you? And so September is like a second New Year's for us inside of our society. In a couple of weeks, we'll be back into small groups and Sunday school and a new fall sermon series I'm super excited about regarding God questions. Kids will be back in school this week or maybe a couple days last week uh, here in township. We'll be back to the grind. We'll have things coming up, opportunities to be involved in outreach, shoe boxes and food boxes and chrismons. We'll have a vision day coming up where we talk about the future of our church. Ministries will kick in and life will get busy and before you know it, Christmas is here and then we're shoveling snow and then we're hoping for spring and then it's time for another 10-week summer sermon series and that's just how it goes. But there's a brief moment in time right around this week and a half inside of our calendar where it's almost like January again, where things kind of restart. And I just want to ask you this morning, why do you do what you do? Why do you pray? Why do you read? Why do you show up to church? Why do you act the way that you act? And just to verify that it goes deeper than just this is what we do. But hopefully the way and the reason we answer that question extends from what is the foundation of our lives. Extends from the standpoint of there has been something from the inside out that has been birthed inside of me and that compels me to do what I do even though it's not perfect, even though I'm still a work in progress. There's things that I should do better or different or not do. But it's coming from the inside out. Inside of my life. Why do we do what we do? I don't know about you, but I don't want to get to one day where I say, God, didn't I choose a ministry career based on what you were doing inside of my life? And didn't I read and didn't I study and didn't I try to be a nice person? And didn't I give 10%? And somewhere, maybe just like in the book of Revelation to the church in Ephesus, to hear a statement that, Mike, you lost track of what was most important, your first love, your first priority inside of life. I never knew you. Or to say, God, look at my house. The yard looks good. Which, let me tell you, I can not say that. So if you're leaving this morning, leave that way. Don't leave by the way of the parsonage. Um, God did not grant Rachel and I green thumbs. Uh, so uh, we're trying to motivate. Anyway. Look at my yard, look at my house. Look at the outside of my life. The facade seems wonderful. And for God to say, 
but your foundation is failing. And maybe you don't notice it now, but one day it'll be the only thing that matters inside of your life. So we end this morning with communion. And we've allowed for some time inside of this. We have uh, Rodney's going to sing a couple of songs. We're going to do what we normally do where you're going to be dismissed to come down and there's going to be a station over here and a station over here. And I know this might make the ushers crazy, but it's possible this morning that you want to come here to pray before you come there to get communion. It's possible that you want to receive communion and then spend some time here praying or in your seats. And I want to ask that over this eight or 10 or or 12 minute period of time, that we simply just be people who evaluate our foundation. Evaluate what's most important and evaluate why do we do what we do and does it come from that internal place of a connected relationship that is real and that is authentic. It's not perfect, but it's real. And it's the most important thing that you could say about my life is that I know and am known by my God. Maybe that's a new commitment for you that you've never made before. Maybe it's one that you've made several years ago and you can continue to be faithful inside of that, yet I think there are still regular checkpoints inside of our life to say, have I gotten away from the center? Am I placing all this focus on the external and the foundation maybe is rotting away? Am I surrounding myself with so much religious activity, even great things, But you know what? I'm not spending a whole lot of time or placing much emphasis in my relationship with Jesus. Today's that opportunity to maybe recenter or for the first time to center your life on where it needs to be centered. Again, Jesus comes through the whole Sermon on the Mount, talking about all these things and and pressing it to the inside and to the inside and to the inside. And then he comes to the end and says, make sure that you get this. Don't just be religiously active know me. Don't just fix all the things on the outside, but make sure your foundation is firm and true. Might that be the case for us this morning? How is your foundation? Who, or more importantly, what, what's the quality of your foundation? And why do you do what you do? Does it extend, extend from your relationship with Christ or just doing the things that we've always done because it's what people expect? of me and what it means to look like a good Christian. What's at the center? What's at the foundation of who you are as a person, as a believer in Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. God, we offer these remaining moments of our service to you. And possibly this morning we've been involved in religious services and activity and we've been engaged but we've never come to the place where we've invited you to come and take up residence at the very center of who we are. That the most important thing that anyone could say about us is that we belong to you. Lord, would you give us that relationship today that we might know you at the very center and depth of who we are. But God, for those of us who have made that commitment in years past or months past, Lord, we know you, we relate to you, we have relationship with you, but still sometimes it's possible that
that we begin to just do the things that we know that we should do, and we've lost track of our relationship with you. We've let our daily quiet time slip because, after all, we're involved in Bible study and we go to church. We know that you're prompting inside of our life that we should pick up the phone and call this person or release this offense inside of our life or offer forgiveness or amend a relationship or engage in some way, but we've held you at a distance because we're pretty much okay. God, we don't want just another year of Bible studies and groups and ministries and church services where we continue just to build to the externals of who we are and miss what's most important. So God, I would pray today that as we engage in what is called communion, that we would have the opportunity to commune with you, to be with you over these moments. Whether it's at the altar, whether it's in our seats, Lord, we pray that you would come and meet with us and that you would be able to know us that there's not a thing that's hidden from you or cut off from you. But the very center of who we are is found in you. God, we ask that you would take these elements of bread and of juice, that you would transform them and that you would meet us through them this morning as we receive communion. Might this not just be a ritual that we do once a month, but a time that we spend in your presence. So we pray that you would come, that you would meet with us here inside of this time. We ask and pray in the matchless name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.